This episode of Moment is brought to you by DraftKings. One week fantasy football at DraftKings means every moment could take you closer to a life-changing payday. Play when you want and pick a new team every time. Use the code MOMENT to play free for a shot at a million bucks in this week's Millionaire Maker event only at DraftKings.com. And by Open Account, a podcast series created by Suchin Pak and Umqua Bank. Open Account explores through honest and sometimes comical interviews how our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is coming soon on iTunes. And by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payments solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more, and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash moment. Getting into college was once a normal teenage rite of passage. Now, it's a global hunger games. You're competing against the kid at the best school in Singapore. Slate and Panoply are here to help. Our new podcast, Getting In, follows a group of seniors through the college application process in real time. Along the way, the students and listeners will get advice from experts with decades of experience. Getting In, a podcast about demystifying college admissions and finding the right fit for every student. Available in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm so psyched. My guest today is Jamie Foley. James Foley is uh, the credit on the movies, but everyone in, in who makes movies knows him as Jamie. Yeah. And Jamie has directed a number of films, uh, including two at the beginning of his career uh, that were enormous uh, to me. One that came out when I was in college and one when I, I was out a few years, but they're Movies have never left me, and, and they're at close range, and uh, Glengarry Glen Ross. And of late, he's become a go-to guy for premiere television. He shot 12 episodes of House of Cards, starting right in the first season of the show, and uh, has just been announced as the director of The Next Fifty Shades of Grey movie. So back to making movies for the cinema. Jamie Foley, thanks for being here, man. Well, thank you. It's great. And I should say, is also directing two ep- is in the middle of uh, directing a seven ep- second episode of Billions. Yeah, the most important thing. Yeah, clearly, <laughs> uh, which is our, our our television show for Showtime. Um, Jamie, last night when we were going our separate ways, you said um, you had a lot of stuff you wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but you are the uh, you're the interviewer, or you have to prompt me. I, no, I'll prompt you. But I mean, even what we were just talking about, uh, I think was really you know before the mics were on, which was that as a director. You have to be aware of managing not just the actors, but managing all the people who surround the creative part. And yeah. have you always been good at that, or is that something you figured out later on? Uh, I feel like I always had an instinct, because I'm a good Catholic boy, to play within the rules on a certain level. And so my struggle has been to not be cowed by the rules, but to be able to identify where is the sweet spot here? Where does it matter? How much time do we spend on this? How much effort do we spend on this? And um, it's always a matter of figuring out uh, what matters to the story. And if it takes more time for a tiny moment that is maybe an eighth of a page on on the script, uh, then we do that, and it, maybe there's a three-page scene that needs less coverage. But it's always a matter of managing the physical resources with the creative intent. Was that a balance you were 
from the beginning? Were you able, or is it, were you able to to handle it? I mean, I, I know you were a pre med student originally, so yeah. I can you, I, clearly you had like sort of a certain kind of expectation that you were going to live a certain kind of life, but then mm. it turned out you were an artist. Mm. Mm. And do you think of yourself as an artist? Absolutely. And uh, I have to remind myself of that sometimes. What do you mean? When my um, right side brain kicks in about being efficient and... And I think uh, one of the biggest challenges is to resist the temptation to be a good boy. And you get a pat on the back. And if you do certain things and you shoot something and you shoot it fast and you shoot it efficiently and the various powers that be that are responsible for the real reality of you have to shoot things within a certain time period, they'll pat you on the back because you're fast. But it's irrelevant to the final product of what's creatively going to be presented to the audience. So that tension between resources and creativity is, I think, at the heart of any filmmaker's uh, responsibility. And sometimes you got to, like, plant your feet in the middle of the room and say, no, we're going to do this. We're going to go over schedule. We're going to go over budget for this moment and because it matters, and we'll make it up later. And uh, there's a lot of people who are sort of only focusing on one aspect of it. Now you have to go against the tide. So going against the tide, being sort of alone, you hear endless stories about directors feeling isolated and alienated in their role because nobody's supporting them because they're being attacked by every direction. But it, you know, at the end of the day, I like it. I like the uh, the tension that becomes focused on the micro decisions of every moment. And I got to say, on Billions, we have great uh, executive producers and uh, Brian and David that one feels supported to go with your instinct about what really matters and and what buttons you're going to push and how you're going to extend a certain opportunity to fill up um, the creative needs. And that's always an important aspect. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you if that's part of what you like about doing TV is the director's not alone. Yeah. I mean, I can see it being difficult, too, for some... Yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic, and I feel very happy having found a comfortable place where I feel artistically very satisfied. Uh, But it has to be on projects, because television is very different than features, because there are writer, executive producers, uh, which is not the case in in a feature film. There's very unusual if a writer is the producer and is sort of hovering over you. It's basically just Akiva Goldsman, I think. (laughs) He's the only writer-producer in that way. Yeah, very, very true. But I've been very lucky because I, most of my time in TV has been with House of Cards and um, Bo Willeman, who's a brilliant uh, guy. And so him whispering in my ear, you know, if somebody's whispering in my ear, I don't mind at all if they're whispering something really intelligent <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's going to make me look better. Um, yeah, Bo's great. The problem is if you got into a situation where the powers that be were dumb. Luckily, I've not encountered that. But there's a real difference between uh, – I did a, a pilot for CBS, my only pilot – I actually enjoyed it and was proud of it because I got along with the writer-producer, Nikki Toscano. She uh, sort of informed me about certain things or made me aware of certain things that expanded my vision of stuff, which is true in this case in Billions, because I think of a lot of stuff, but sometimes um, if the writer-producer is smart, 
they're expanding your awareness of what's possible in the scene. And that only accrues you know, positively towards me because at the end of the day, people are going to look at it and say, oh, it was really well directed. The actors were great. And, and you were saying that there was a, a difference. Like, so doing the pilot for CBS, did you feel like network was very different than... Oh, Jesus, yes. Uh, massively different. Because you've done premium cable primarily. Yeah, I'd only done uh, uh, House of Cards. And when I did my pilot... I was stunned by the number of executives that at CBS that were assigned to like costumes or hair and makeup and all that stuff. So we got endless notes about whether somebody should have facial hair or not facial hair. So I mean, it's intrusion in the sense if you make a feature, like nobody's giving you notes about facial hair. But you know, I really feel as if you can be creative within any context, as long as you understand what the context is and the people that are influencing you are people you respect. So the pilot that I did, just because I respected the writer-producer, uh, I was proud of. It didn't get picked up, but because Len, Les Moonves sort of looked at it and said, nah, no. It happens. They have to make decisions for a whole variety yeah, of reasons. Yeah, yeah. You never know. Yeah, and it's kind of weird to me that pilots are made, like they spend five million bucks on to shoot and episode of something and then judge that as opposed to looking at the script and considering the actors involved and everything. But but that's a paradigm that's been set up and uh, I... Uh, yeah, I mean, Netflix no doesn't do it, right? Yeah, Netflix. I mean, my I got really spoiled on House of Cards because David Fincher was the originator and um, he set up a situation where directors were primo. He was the showrunner, which is unusual in television. Right, you're saying the first year he ran the show before Bo became the showrunner, even though Bo created the show. Exactly. And um, so in House of Cards, for instance, directors have final cut of their episodes, which not every (laughs) director of House of Cards is aware of, but uh, I am. But what that does is make you even more open to, uh, in my experience, after David was not involved anymore in seasons uh, three— um, when Bo Willeman, who then became the showrunner, has something to say, I was incredibly open to it. You know, at the moment when we're filming or in post-production and the editing, and knowing you have final cut only gives you the responsibility to take in every voice you possibly can hear and do the best thing you can put forward. This is a question I'd written down and I was going to ask you. Um, your ability to be open and to take in ideas is really... It's a kind of a beautiful thing. Like when you're on set, I've noticed you – it seems like, first of all, you become very adrenalized. You're, mm-hmm. It seems like you really love every second from when you step on yeah. set. Yeah. I mean, um, I feel as if I'm alive when I'm shooting. You, it's, it's clear. It, uh, um, it comes over you, mm. Jamie. Yeah, absolutely. And you're very clear, very specific. But I'm, I'm so interested in uh, – a lot of the time artists, directors – they hold on very tight to the idea that's in their head beforehand. Mm. Right? They've spent time thinking about it. There's, I know how I want to shoot this. You come in knowing how you want to shoot it. Yeah. But how did you train yourself to be open to the best idea that shows up, whether yeah. it shows up from an actor, a writer, somebody, and you're not a pushover so that if somebody comes up to you with a bad idea, you're very good at um, moving it away. Mm. But w- what was the approach? Because I think a lot of people feel like, well, I, I, I either have to take all the ideas or take none of the ideas, like, yeah. how, you know, in the moment with that time pressure, how do you do it? Yeah, I, I think it's very important because there is a kind of, um, you want to establish your identity and your 
quasi—I'm I'm aware of the crew's opinion of you, the actor's <laughs> opinion yeah. of you, everyone's opinion of you, you know, and uh, they like certain people, you know, he knows what he wants, and he gets it. Uh, okay, that's cool, but I feel confident that if all else fails and everybody around me, writers, producers, actors, everybody says, Duh, I don't know, that I'm going to supply an answer and do something— Knowing that, I'm very open to anybody, well, not anybody, (laughs) but the actors, producers, the writers, to have ideas that I hadn't thought about because I can entertain them because I know that if that's stupid, I know what the fallback position is. And so I feel very much like I've benefited very much from in my experience in television where writer producers are whispering something in my ear and just heightening my awareness of, of all something. the stuff that's not, but and you well it's very interesting what you just said about the crews you know it's nothing people talk about that much but it's so true like if you work with a crew that was just working on another show and you see the movies come out and it's a big success but they'll sometimes say ah oh, that director didn't know a thing mm. And you, you exactly. They, they, and you go. Well, wait. The movie um, is ninety three on Rotten Tomatoes and did two hundred million. And they'll go, yeah, yeah. A fucking idiot, that guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know where to put the camera. And you go, right. I mean, that's what you're saying. And, and so you say yeah. you can get caught up in. Um, yes, I mean because we all grow up wanting approval from other people. Whenever whatever decision you make, everybody goes, ah, that's great. But in making movies it's not the case you know you say something and you yeah but i think about it in terms of dealing with actors and the actors and billions i gotta say are primo because sometimes you can go up to an actor and say something and they just stare at you neutrally and you think what the hell does that mean <laughs> you know what is their reaction to it but the actors and billions um to my delightful surprise, you say something to them and they say thank you, <laughs> which is the greatest response you could possibly imagine. Um, well, yeah, they are. I will say I feel so lucky also to have them. I mean, well, well but you were smart in casting them because, you know, it's the old adage about, you know, cast the best actors and then shut up and say action. And that has been the case for the majority of situations I've been in the billions. Um it's extremely well cast, and um, I always want to say in the rehearsal action and see what the actors do, you know, because I have in the back of my mind what I imagine them doing, but if they present something which is beyond my imagination, I'm going to claim it and say it's a James Foley film. Right. Did you have that from the beginning? Uh, yeah. I've always, for some reason... I had this adage about, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So you can tell an actor, do this, you know, and on this line, do this, and pick up the drink, and then sit down and have this emotion at this moment. Uh, and that's good to have in the back of your mind. But at the, on the other hand, you've got to get the actor to see the same thing you're seeing, to feel the same thing you're seeing. And even like last night on, on Billions, Paul Giamatti, who's fucking brilliant, um, it really is, yeah. One of the greatest things happened where we'd gone to do a scene and I said, you know, my only thought about the scene is that you're up on your feet all the time and you're moving around. And he said, ah, I was thinking the exact same thing. That's sweet. That really makes you feel good that you're on the same page. And you have to, 
I always feel like it's not the actor's responsibility to know about right. your in overtime or your in meal penalties. It's the actor's responsibility to be as real as possible. And it's my responsibility to protect them from the mechanical aspects and the real-world aspects of it so that they're living in the space of the story, not in the space of making a show. My guest today is Jamie Foley. We'll be right back after this short break. This episode of The Moment is sponsored by DraftKings. Play to win a million dollars this week and every week this football season at DraftKings.com. With one week fantasy at DraftKings, you can play when you want with the team you want. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use the promo code MOMENT to play for free for a shot at $1 million in this week's Millionaire Maker event. Enter MOMENT for free entry now only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. I was going to ask you how conscious you are about the persona that you have on set, the mm. words you choose to use, the mm. rhythm you fall in. Like, did you um, – because it is different from how you are in a yeah, room. that's true. So how, how did that come to be? Did that just happen to you when you started or was it something that you consciously built? Yeah, definitely didn't consciously build. Um, I became more and more – respectful of and dependent of my own reaction to things. Like, I'm watching a scene, and I'm just an audience member, and how do I react to it? What do I think should be different? And I feel as if, um, and somebody said it more articulately than me, but I'm, in a sense, making a movie for one, believing that I am a member of the human race, and so therefore that will be uh, understandable to the rest of the human race. But I never think about, like, what are the people in Des Moines going to think about this? Right. You know, I feel like, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn and Staten Island, and uh, but I feel like I'm a human uh, being who uh, tries more and more to be as aware of what I'm being influenced by and what... Uh, matters to me, so I feel as if if I'm as truthful to myself, to satisfying myself, then people in Des Moines will get it because they're humans too. And so part of that then is to try to be, in a way, the truest version of yourself once you're on when you walk on set, Mm. because you're trying to not let all sorts of extra stuff. Absolutely, I, I I feel the most alive and the most real when I'm on set. Yeah, when I'm reacting to things that are happening because it's a whole panoply of influences that are coming at you and you have to react to them and you have to like make decisions about what you're going to focus on, what you're not going to focus on. And so for me, directing is just honing everything down to essentially, I guess, what pleases you, what makes you feel happy, you know, because when I watch a take, and the actors just hit something on a certain mode. I get very excited. And, yeah, you do. Yeah, and I'm, but it's, it's genuine because I just get thrilled because I feel as if we're capturing a moment and it's going to be there and it's going to be directed by James Foley. So <laughs> I feel as if, you know, this proprietary sort of uh, ownership of that moment. And I get thrilled because um, I know that we've got it. That thrilled, sort of enthusiastic, uh, centered place that you come from now. I, you know, you made right out of the box some important movies that were really successful in various ways. At Close Range, After Dark, My Sweet. You know, you directed the Papa Don't Preach video for Madonna, yeah, yeah. right? 
And then Glengarry came along. But back in, in those days, or shortly thereafter, as I'm sure you know, you know, people would, would talk about you as this great director, but they would sometimes say, like, oh, he has demons. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. But that seems to have had, like, what what was that? Because, you know, and you were kind of in movie jail for a while. Oh, um, yeah. And the guy that I know, uh-huh. I, I, yeah, I see an artist, but I don't see somebody who's just keeping the demons at bay by a thread. So, like, what ha- you know, what, what, what changed for you? Uh, 25 years of Freudian analysis. <laughs> quite real, quite true. No, uh, I've actually been involved with a kind of quasi-hardcore Freudian analysis since I was 28, and, Real uh, analysis. You mean yeah. talk, sit on the thing four days a yeah, week? Yeah, in the beginning, four days a week lying on the couch. And she doesn't talk or he doesn't talk. He doesn't talk. And um, it's evolved and it's ongoing uh, a couple of days a week now. And for me, it's a wonderful adventure to be constantly uh, engaged with a process that is developing you. I, I sincerely f- still feel as if I'm growing up, and I will become an adult at some point. I'm not there yet. Right. <laughs> but um, I love self-analysis. I love being able to check myself because every decision I'm going to make as a director is going to be based on a certain bias and a certain... And I want that bias to be neurotic-free as much as possible and to be as truthful as possible. And so it's not about me. It's about... Not about my neurosis. It's about the reality of the scene and the actors in the scene. And I feel as if I am getting better and better at it and when I'm 102, I'll be You'll be at a my kick-ass Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you feel like it got to a point for you where you were like, I got to solve this problem? Yeah. Whatever the things are, you got to like, well, it's affecting me as a – like whatever is bugging me, my neurosis, uh, whatever's churning inside. Yeah. I mean, I often have read about directors talking about certain films they made as therapy and uh, – I just read something very – it was Nancy Myers for her new movie, in The Intern. And she's an interesting character to me because she's so anathema to my, my worldview. But she was talking about, you know, how personal it becomes in your view of reality. And I always felt as if um, I didn't want my movie making to be the therapy. I wanted my therapy to be the therapy. And my movie making to be as open and as uh, neurotic free as possible, you know, which is different than Woody Allen once talked about. Because Woody Allen once talked about being in analysis and for analysis for yeah. a long time, and then he came to a point where he felt between him and his analyst it was a draw, and he stopped. I don't feel yet. And my, am I talking about this? <laughs> my Freudian analyst is like eighty five. And I love him. What's amazing to me is that at 85, he remembers things I said 20 years ago that I have no memory of. But it's all about focus. It's all about trying to just be as uncumbered self as possible and being aware of whatever neurotic sort of inclinations you have, you're aware of. So therefore, it doesn't interfere with your direction. Unencumbered self is great. I often talk about the battle, the whole thing being about becoming 
comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, there you go. Your authentic self. But yeah. my friend Seth Godin, who writes great books about all this stuff, um, said even the word authentic is freighted because mm. in a world where you're taking in so many different messages, you really don't even know. You kind of know... Uh, what's the avatar for authenticity, but you don't mm. actually know what's authentic, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. which is true, yeah. but unencumbered yeah. is great. That that the, mm. the more you can strip away the stuff and try yeah. to just feel, I'm going to react as I just am. Yes. In yes. all situations, it yes. protects you. Yes. Without getting triggered, right? By yes. pa- the past. Yes, yes. That's a perfect articulation not being triggered by the past because Freud talked about the black hand of the past that sort of influences you in a disruptive way because um, what happened to you when you were six really matters but you got to be aware of it lay claim to it and be liberated from it yes that's the part we all that third part is the hardest part yeah yeah yeah, I mean (laughs) recognizing it uh, finally talking about it but to truly be liberated yeah. from it. But that is what I see. And Dave and I talk about this a lot. My you know, filmmaking and uh, producing partner talk about this a lot. Um, that you do seem very, you seem free on set. And like mm. you're uh, able to take it in. And it's, it, it, it's, it's a moving thing to watch, especially because I, I know that in the, in the 90s, mm. you were not unburdened when you were on <laughs> set. Oh. No, that's quite true. How do you know that? <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> no, you're right. Now, I've become better, and um, I'm in a race to be as brilliant as I can, to shine as brightly as I can before I fade out into the universe. <laughs> and um, it's a great feeling to have um, to want to just do better every time. I mean, it's corny um, to just be better every time you go at it and i don't think it's corny at all man i think that not being because look taking accurate stock is really difficult Mm. right to measure and move forward Mm. and to keep pushing it's hard but essential and it's instinctual i think all of us uh as animals uh want to do better and as human animals and um you know i shot some of billions last night and I woke up this morning and thought, mm, I could have done better. <laughs> I could have, you know, done this, done this, and done that. And um, I used to regard that as a criticism and a negative thing. Then I realized, yes, that's about being alive. It's about always pushing to become smarter and become better. And I really am respectful of Ridley Scott, for instance, who's must be seventy, and I guess he just knocked it out of the park. On this yeah, on the Martian. Yeah, it's getting great reviews, and so that's very inspirational. That um, directors can go on and be, I think he's seventy-five, and make a really uh, present movie uh, that is being heralded as the best since Gladiator. Uh, I love that. Yeah, me too. Well, I mean, what, so what did it, when what did it feel like to you? Like those years when it was harder for you to get yeah. jobs, yeah, and you weren't able to practice this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you deal with it, man? Yeah, I, I'm, it's interesting because I realized <laughs> looking at my resume and IMDb that there are years separating certain projects. What IMDb doesn't provide is what you were doing in those years. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, I came to a point where I, I stopped after per- Perfect Stranger, which was not a great experience uh, filming it. Uh, I have enormous uh, affection for Halle Berry and for Bruce Willis. Um, but for various reasons, it was not the best experience I've had. And I realized that I kind of withdrew after that moment. And I kind of wanted to reassess what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. So, eight, But that's eight, it's eight years, eight. basically. Or something like that. Between no, like eight years. It was between Perfect Stranger and uh, House of Cards. Uh, mm, Close. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Close to eight years, no. man. Seven or eight years. What was I doing then? <laughs> no, but I wonder what it because you knew, like I, I, you'd, you know, you kind of worked consistently for a long time, mm, mm. and I'm wondering if during that time period you thought about yep. when you started doing it again, approaching it in a different way. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely had a mid-career assessment of what the fuck am I doing and uh, what matters, what do I care about, and. Um, I remember having a moment where I felt like, okay, to be a human being, I don't have to be a director. I don't have to be a movie director. I can just be a person. I needed to sort of establish that with myself before I went back to wanting to be a director on on a different level, a more elective level, uh, where I was choosing what I was doing. And because in the beginning, you know, you're just desperate. You come out of film school, you do anything. You know, somebody offers you a movie, you say, yes, 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 I love it. And, um, but you get to a point where you say, okay, uh, making a movie is great. It feels cool, but let's make a movie that matters. And uh, that happened in between Perfect Stranger and House of Cards. Uh, And House of Cards mattered. And what I learned, which is should have been self-evident, that Hollywood is very much about what have you done lately in the last six months, not in the last six years. And my next adventure, Fifty Shades of Grey sequel, is very much, not very much, entirely based on House of Cards. And so part of me feels like, you know, fuck you. Wait a minute. I've done other movies and stuff, but I understand um, the heat index. And I also subscribe to it when I'm going to hire um, uh, uh, cinematographers, production editors. Editors. It's all about what have they done lately. And it's creepy and stupid. (laughs) So I'm trying to make myself more inclusive than just the Lexus. Because, months. you mean, you felt like you were on the other side. Because I think it's important. You felt, you mean, so you, you take these, say to yourself, okay, I made this movie. I don't really like how I feel now when I'm doing this. I need yeah. to... I need to uh, stop. I need to stop. I need to reevaluate. I need absolutely. to, like, get myself together. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and then, you, whenever you poke your head back up, it's like, oh, the, the offers aren't coming in the way that they were yeah. before. Oh, yeah. I mean, and were you angry? Uh no, I never got angry. I f- always felt, because I got blissfully aware in the beginning of something new is the hottest thing you could possibly present to Hollywood. And so when I made Reckless, my first movie, before that movie came out, 
I was the hottest motherfucker on the planet. And then the movie came out and did not perform commercially. And I was, and, and I remember the LA Times had a headline saying, When What's Hot Turns Cool. And it was a whole thing about how hot I was before my first movie came out. And then it came out and it didn't perform. And so it became cool. And that changed me dramatically because I lost my Pollyanna aspect of everyone's going to love me because I'm a great guy and I'm cool. <laughs> and um, I feel like I uh, learned something from that. I want to say, you know, I, I saw a solitary man recently. Ah. And uh, it's fucking great. Oh, thanks, man. You know, it, it's massively cool. And um, I got to admit that when I came on to the show and stuff and billions and stuff, I knew of certain things of... Um, uh, certain movies and certain projects, but I didn't know about Solitary Man. For some reason, it wasn't. But then when it became apparent to me, I I feel like <laughs> I'm more inclined to listen to you than <laughs> anything you have to say. Um, no, seriously, I just feel as if, um, you know, the best thing when you're collaborating with people is that you respect. Oh, yeah, of course. No, I'll say the... Thank you for that. Yes, that movie means so much to us. And, you know, it took me four years to write it. Wow, I, I, wrote really? it I wrote it myself, and then Dave and I directed it together. Oh, and um, it's, it's so a weird thing. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, no, it got like, people who, when people watch it um, and, and, and get it, it, it means a lot to me. But it's funny, LA, it's one of those weird things. It's a real small New York movie, and it's not seen by people in LA. Like, it really? Uh, no, yeah, to me, it's, it's massive. Thing. Thanks. No, yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah. That's so funny that, oh, because Dave and I directed a good movie, you'll, we don't seem like jerks when we come up to you and talk to you. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's great. What's, that's what's that's cool. I mean, I mean, if you're doing television and there's writer producers, you better respect them and because when they have something to say, you want to listen. But you better, that's why you got to choose the ones you do wisely, right? If you're yeah. a TV director, oh, you got to say no a lot, absolutely. which is hard. Uh, no, absolutely. And because you're a feature director, you can't away. You can say no. Yes, yes. And I feel arrogant and pricky now that uh, I can. You do? Yeah. You mean saying no still hurt? It's hard. Is it hard for you to say no because of the weird years? Uh, no, it's uh, easy now because I House of Cards. I yes. did twelve episodes, and so fuck you all uh-huh. in premium television. Uh-huh. But the opportunities that provided themselves when you guys approached me and we had our Skype conversation. I thought, I know these guys' history and they're cool. They're smart. And I wanted, because, you know, you got to lay out landscape of every project. And if you do premium television, Showtime, Billions, uh, Brian Koppelman, David Levine, you're dealing with that. And you better fucking respect it and like it. We're going to pause for a second for a quick word from our sponsor. Money is one of the last great taboos. Something we all need, but rarely dare to discuss. Until now. Open Account. A series of interviews created by Suchin Pak and Umqua Bank explores our collective uncomfortable silence around money. Honest, emotional, sometimes comical. Open Account goes deep into the most rewarding, challenging, and paradoxical aspects of the number one leading stressor in America, money. Open account, coming soon on iTunes. You know, the thing you were talking about before about how um, the heat and everything, like uh, you know, how if you do a project, 
Hollywood judges by the recent stuff. I yeah. I also think what's interesting is that you know you were always considered such an you were always considered like such a talented and great director, and then there were these you know in your early career stories about a little bit of recklessness and uh, you know demons. Yeah. And then I do think that um, because you know you would hear, as you say, crews talk, and you hear from people, and then mm. so I think it got for a while. It got it did. I know you know people would bring up your name for a number of years, and they would say, "Oh, I don't know if you want to you know do that thing." And then yeah. I think, and I'm, I'm and I know then you went away and dealt, you know you figured out on your own how you yeah. wanted to reframe who you were exactly and reintroduce myself, reintroduce yourself as a different thing. Yep. But Fincher. Mm. Reaching out for you, yeah, I love must have felt. I got to think when David, because I remember watching how this is my thing, right? Because you directed one of my abs, you know, absolute favorite movies of all time, right? Two movies that really mean a lot to me, but Glenn Gary and Glenn Ross is one of my favorite movies of all time. And when I remember sitting at home watching House of Cards and seeing your mm. name pop up, mm. and I got so excited that oh, I was like, cool. Jamie Foley's back. Like, yeah. I was like, this is, and because Fincher, by doing that, yeah. it, to me, it was like David Fincher, and he gave you a very early episode. Yep. And it was like, would you direct the, the... He did one and two, I did three and four. Right. So you were the guy yeah. who came right behind yeah, him. Exactly. Yeah. And I just thought his imprimatur yeah. was like, listen, Jamie Foley is a great director. Yeah. I'm entrusting my world to Jamie Foley. You out there in the world should start entrusting yeah. your world to him. He's Suck ready. He's yeah. ready to fucking do this now. Yeah, yeah. W- what did that feel like to you? Uh, it was and great. How did it happen? Um, Josh Donnan, who is a partner with David Fincher, uh, Josh having been his agent at CAA and now his producing partner, um, he introduced me to David early on. And, I mean, years and years ago. Early on in David's career, you're saying? In David's career, yes. And um, I always respected David enormously. So when it came together, it seemed very organic and very like, yeah, this makes sense. But it's, what's interesting is that as a director, it's very um, exclusive club of people you want to say that you are following in their tradition of their a visual perspective of what's going on. And Fincher was one of the few. And I embraced it entirely and feel very proud that the 12 episodes that I did were influenced by David's pilot. And when did he grill you before hiring you to do it? Did you guys sit and talk? We sat and talked. He didn't grill me, I got to say. Did you know it was... uh, Did you consider it a big opportunity? Like, did you consider to yourself... Okay, this is a big foot back. Like, um, I have a real chance here to, like, reinvent exactly. Jamie Foley. Did you know that? Yes, 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 yes. What did you tell yourself? Like, so those, because, like, a lot of people get into their 50s, and they mm. think, if I haven't done it, it's over, or I've done my work, <laughs> right? I mean, people can get to a place, especially in our business, where yeah. it's so age, it's so ages, right? And it just absolutely. is. Um <sighs> You could have decided you were just going to go teach somewhere in the Midwest. Like, you yeah. could have said it's not. How did you keep yourself going and focused? Because you, you know, you where it ends up, right? Which is you getting Fifty Shades, mm. which is like this, you know, huge franchise that all that giant opportunity because um, 
you know, some people love the move, first movie, some people don't love the first yeah. movie, but all eyes are kind of on it. Yeah. And you got this gig, mm. but which is this the, the culmination of this thing that that, that happened yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. But at any time when you weren't working a lot in Hollywood, at any time during mm. those years, did you think about cashing it in? Did you wonder if it was going to happen again? No, you didn't. I, That's I, so interesting. No, I never, How? I never doubted. Um, I always felt as if I'd be connected to Hollywood because. Um, I have some kind of delusional arrogance, I guess. <laughs> but I just felt like um, from film school, you know, what's really weird is that I got to say I'm very connected to my USC film school experience it's still in, in a way that's very quite present. In what way? You explain that. In the sense that I want to create something new and something that has not been seen before. And I feel as if my best movie is yet to come. And so you were able to, it sounds like you were able to, even in, in those years, not focus on um, why isn't this happening for me, but focus on when it, when I get the next chance, when I'm going to do something great. Exactly, exactly. When I get the next chance. I, I never uh, felt as if I was out of the game. Um, despite what others may have felt. <laughs> right. But I always felt... You didn't think of it that way. No, not at all. I feel as if the trajectory of my existence included a pause, a certain pause. And um, that pause was important to reassert my perspective and re-quantify my acceptance and my respect for whatever my point of view was. More of my conversation with Jamie Foley, superstar director of movies like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile app developer, check out Braintree. Braintree is the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Munchery, with excellent customer service and simple integration. Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree gives you a full-stack payment solution, support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a simple integration across all platforms. With superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To learn more, and for your first $50,000 in transactions, fee-free, go to BraintreePayments.com slash moment. That's BraintreePayments.com slash moment. I want to ask you some Glengarry questions because, you know, the, the, I call this show uh, mm. The Moment. And yeah. one of the things I'm interested in is um, when high and low moments happen for somebody, the, the way in which they process them. But I'm, I'm also really interested in... Um, whether people are aware that the that it's happening when it's happening. So when you were shooting that movie, when you were shooting the Alec Baldwin scene mm. in that movie, mm. first of all, how did you and Mamet talk about adding that scene to the movie? Was it when you got the script? Had he already added that scene in? Absolutely, he had written a script, uh, a movie script, and knew and it needed an extra. He knew it needed yes. that introductory scene. Absolutely, and uh, which always to me made me feel as if subsequent stage presentations they didn't include the Alec Baldwin scene it seemed as if it was missing something 
Um, because I felt as if it they was, don't do it though. I, I mean, the last two productions in Broadway uh, yeah, did not. They, they don't didn't, do it. They yeah. just play, present the play. Yeah, uh, it's a mistake as far as I'm concerned, because I feel as if uh, Mammoth screenplay, which you wrote on on his own without any interaction from me or anybody else, was the next generation of his play. You feel like he finished the play? Yes, actually. yes, yes. I think it. it the play's ultimate reality is includes Alex Seen. And, um, I think it's probably there in the minds of people who go see it anyway. In yeah, a way, you I, kind of to me. I think so too. Maybe you carry it with yeah. you. How uh, was was David was Mavin involved in, in the casting, or was it you and the producers? How? Uh, no, it, uh, definitely David was not involved. Uh, and I said this only because I invited him endlessly, and he was resistant. Um, and why? Because he why didn't he direct? He didn't want to direct it for some reason. He didn't want to direct it, and um, I insisted on that I would meet him before we made this movie. And so I went up to Cambridge, um, Square, yeah, in Cambridge, and he had his office directly across from the main entrance of uh, Harvard, and um, we spent an afternoon walking around the campus talking about the difference between a Catholic interpretation of uh, the Garden of Eden and a Judaic, because he had uh, studied to the point that he could be a um, rabbi. Yeah, I've heard him speak on this stuff. Yeah, and he you know, didn't go the whole way, but he studied. And so we had a discussion between the Catholic interpretation of the uh, Garden of Eden and the Talmudic interpretation. And uh, I felt that that was really useful. <laughs> in making the movie. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, because a movie about descent, right? About uh, yeah, Certainly a movie about people who took a bite of the apple. Yeah. It's the other side. I, I mean, it's directly the other side of it. So absolutely. that's there. Yes. Um, so you cast the movie, and when you put Alec in the part, mm. did he have to read for it? No, no, he was Alec Baldwin. He was Mr. Stud Puppy of the moment. And uh, uh, yeah, there were always these rumors that the other guys didn't really take him seriously uh, at first. Is that true? N- well, what happened is that um, the shooting in the movie, all the actors except for Alec were very um, copacetic. And the dynamic of who they were in the office directly mimicked who they were in Hollywood. So really, yeah. oh, Ricky Roma because Roma was like the star. Exactly. So the, Al Pacino, the, the, yeah, and 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 uh, Jack Lemmon used to be. I mean, he still be, mattered a lot, but he used yes, to be. Yes, but used to be somebody. Used to be the top man on the board. And Ed Harris wondered why he wasn't fucking Pacino. Why he wasn't Pacino? Oh yeah, right. I'm saying that in was life. true. That was true. Yes, and that was all very real because um, not to speak out of school, but you know, Ed was very aware of how come, not, how come I'm not Ricky Romer and but that was great for this for the project and it was great for the dynamics between among all of the actors so Gungari was the least stressful movie I've ever made but when Alex showed up you were saying everyone else was copacetic yes so Except, when Alex showed up yes uh, when Alex showed up Jack Lemmon led the charge against fuck him you know he's a creep <laughs> really yeah yeah and 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 jack lemon is as sweet as a human being can possibly be but he was like kind of like vociferous about fuck alec 
And I love that. <laughs> I love that dynamic. And if Jack's doing it, that obviously gets everybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 it kind of permeates the out. whole thing. Yeah. There you go. And I, you picked up on that as a director. You were aware this was happening. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love as a director is that what's happening in real life and how, do you, how can you um, incorporate that into the reality of the film that you're making? And it, it made perfect sense. The reality of the actors' interactions directly mimicked what the characters would do. So all I had to do was film it and say action. But what I I gotta just say about Jack Lemmon, not to be so nostalgic, but I have a picture in my house. I have like very few uh, photographs in my house. But one photograph I have is of me kind of directing Jack Lemmon. Wow, yeah. And then I saw it recently before I left to come here. And uh, I thought, what the fuck drug was I on that I thought I could direct Jack Lemmon? <laughs> right. But he was great. He was so uh, open to, like, this is the first movie I've ever done, and I want to make it great. And there was no sense of I was directing you know, Captain Roberts or any number of characters that he'd done. So I I have a kind of love affair, I realize, with actors. Uh, sure. And when, when Alec came in, when he did the speech and you're there, I, I imagine mm. that was a day of filming? Uh, yeah, it was one day. Probably one day, right? Yeah. And we had like a quarter of a day of rehearsal. And did you, know, did you know it was magic? Absolutely, because we had a rehearsal. And it was just me and Alec in the room, and I said action, and he did it, and I said, ooh, fuck me. <laughs> Shut up. Hold that thought. Let's do it when we're on screen. Really? You knew? Oh, absolutely. You are like, stay the fuck away. Yeah, yeah stay the Point fuck the away. the camera. Exactly. Exactly. I just felt like, you know, fully shut up. When he did it, could you see that the other actors... Got it? Yes, yes. They got it big time. <laughs> they did? They were pissed. Which is perfect, which is exactly what they should have been. They were pissed at his star turn. You mean, they were pissed at, what, um, as, as characters, but as actors, they were pissed at like, oh my God, this guy gets to have the... Exactly, exactly, which is why that's the perfect interaction between what the uh, actors are experiencing and what the characters are experiencing. And in this case, uh, it was simpatico, and they all felt like, who the fuck is you? who the fuck are you, Alec? In a way, what a smart thing for Jack Lemmon to do. Yeah. To to decide, knowing Alec is charming, like sort of knowing that everyone could have loved Alec to yeah. whether he meant it or not, to have found a way to yeah to so use that. I was thinking about it last night because uh, at lunch on the sh- on the show, on our show, um, Paul, I remember Paul and I were walking to a table to to have lunch, and he. Mm saw the people who were on his, in the show, on his staff, his people. Uh, uh-huh. He saw the actors who play those parts, uh-huh. and he grabbed them. with a, and, and you could see that he is acting in the role that he plays on the show, which is like a boss and mentor to these people. Yeah. And he's acting like that in, like they're mentor. Yeah. Like he really yeah, puts yeah, his yeah, arms yeah, around yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. a great thing when you see. Oh, it's a great thing. It, it, it's uh, it's exciting. from set into real Yes, yes. As, and it, what's interesting is that I've thought about Paul and his, um, the register of his voice, whatever it is on yeah. the scale of stuff. He's, uh, he's uh, got a lower register. And it is, you know, an actor's 
got a face and a voice, and Paul is state-of-the-art. He is. Yeah. It's a very mammoth way to think about it, too. He always talks about the voice and stuff. So there's this quote you have in your Twitter bio, right? Which is no, uh, no. the Billy Wilder quote. Oh, yeah. That, a director must be a policeman, midwife, psychoanalyst, sycophant, and a bastard. Mm, yeah. Totally uh, believe in that. And you feel that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I love that quote because it encompasses everything that you feel. And, you know, to be a bastard and a sycophant at the same time really matters. Um to everybody, to the actors, to the right. producers, to, to the whole... They, they, you mean they have to know that you love them and you're serving them, but you also yes. have to be willing to give them the bitter medicine when there you, you need go. to. There you go. There you go. Exactly. So, uh, just to finish up, I just want to talk about where you find yourself now as you're about to go. So, you're going to finish Billions and you're going to leave yep. and you're going to go to begin work on Fifty Shades. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is one of those moments in somebody's life where you're returning to the cinema. Yep. In a very high-profile way. Yep. And do you find yourself... I know you're excited. Do you find yourself nervous at all about, like, all the eyes on you and about taking on... You know, there is no exec producer. There is no buffer. There is no... I mean, there is... Yeah, you're dead right. Um, I'm on my own, in a sense, and I love it. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. It's what I want at this moment. And um, I have found a comfortable relationship with the author of the books who's a big cheese in the production of of stuff Uh, I like her she's a um, British working class chick and what she has accomplished is creating something that resonates in Japan and in Madrid and the idea that there's a kind of communal sexual dynamic which is appreciated in across a lot of cultures, that's what fascinates me the most. So I'm very energized to create something which matches my own fantasies and uh, the fantasies of fans in Madrid and I feel like it's, it's an enormous challenge because you've got to be attentive to those fans, but also saying your own thing, your own personal perspective on that stuff. Um, and it's interesting because it's sexual, so it's become very personal. Like, you know, you got to reveal yourself, your own, sure. your own sexual fantasies. But I've met with uh, Dakota Johnson, the lady, and I've Skyped with Jamie Dornan, and I feel very simpatico. I feel like we're on to an adventure that is going to transcend the first movie and become art and entertainment. Well, that's a great note to end on. There you uh, go. Art and entertainment. Yeah. Jamie Foley... Man, uh, I'm so glad we've gotten to spend this time together this last uh, couple months, and I'm Likewise. so thrilled for you that you're off to uh, on this incredible uh, yeah. adventure in art and entertainment. People can find Jamie on Twitter uh, at James. What, what's your name on there? Just James Foley Jr. James Foley Jr. You'll know it's him because he's got the Billy Wilder quote up there. Yeah. I'm at Brian Koppelman on Twitter, and um, 
I normally give out my email address, but uh, I feel like there will be so many Fifty Shades inquiries that I'm not going to do it on go, this yeah. episode uh, of the show. There will and, be a lot. Because uh, just, uh, you know, Fifty Shades people, great. I uh, can't wait for, to see the movie. If you come back next week to my show, then you'll get my uh, email address. <laughs> uh, all right, everybody. Thanks. See you next time.